Last month, the Biden administration extended the federal pause on student loan repayments for a fourth time. Repayments that were supposed to restart yesterday, May 1st, now won't kick in for another four months until August 31st. In the meantime, on Thursday, President Biden gave the clearest indication yet that he's strongly considering another boon for borrowers, who also happen to be voters. I am considering dealing with some debt reduction. I am not considering $50,000 debt reduction, but I'm in the process of taking a hard look at whether or not there are going to, there will be additional debt forgiveness, and uh, I'll have an answer on that in the next couple weeks. Here. This is On Point. I'm Meghna Chakrabarty. Bloomberg is reporting that the Biden administration is considering wiping out $10,000 in student loan debt per person via executive action. The Washington Post recently reported that the administration is looking at limiting relief to lower and middle income earners. All told, it could result in a cancellation of roughly $245 billion in student loan debt. That's out of the $1.7 trillion of debt collectively owed now. Okay, we could spend the hour debating whether or not cancellation is a good idea, who should qualify, how much should be canceled, etc., 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 and we have actually done that before on this show. But today, we're going to talk about something different. Because let's get real for a moment, shall we? No matter how much student loan debt gets canceled now, whether it be $0 to $1.7 trillion, cancellation does absolutely nothing to solve the problem of why there's so much debt to begin with. It does nothing to solve the problem of the student loan debt that's going to be incurred by every future class of American college students. And it does nothing to solve the problem of the decades-long skyrocketing cost of higher ed. Student loan debt cancellation is a politically popular but retroactive act of policymaking. Proverbial can kick down the proverbial road. So we want to talk about solving actual problems for the future and what, if anything, the federal government, both holder and backer of this mountain of debt, can proactively do to solve the student loan debt crisis. Well, Josh Mitchell joins us today to help us with this. He's a reporter for The Wall Street Journal and author of The Debt Trap, How Student Loans Became a National Catastrophe. Josh, welcome. Yes. Hi. Thanks. So, you know, I firmly believe that to understand uh, best where we should be going, we need to have a clear uh, understanding of where we have been. <laughs> so let's sort of do a, a speed course in student loan uh, and federal loan uh, history here. And we're going to start back in the Johnson administration. So when President Lyndon Johnson signed the Higher Ed Act of 1965, he was out at Southwest Texas State Teachers College in San Marco, Texas. The school he had attended, by the way, and which he credited with helping him escape the crushing poverty of his upbringing, here is what he said. Here the seeds were planted from which grew my firm conviction that for the individual... Education is the path to achievement and fulfillment. And for the nation, it is a path to society that is not only free but civilized. And for the world, it is the path to peace. For it is education that places reason over force. 
So, Josh Mitchell, we already had the GI Bill, but what did LBJ do in 1965 that further um, expanded the federal government's role in financing higher education? Well, he convinced Congress to create what we now know as the Higher Education Act and the Maine Student Loan Program. And basically, he put the uh, higher, he put the loan program on a path toward becoming an entitlement. So basically, everyone who wanted to go to college and needed uh, help going to college would now have access to student loans, and there would essentially be, be no underwriting meaning you didn't really have to qualify. You didn't have to have a certain academic background or a certain, you know, income background. You could qualify for a loan if you were of college age. And so this really became an entitlement. An entitlement. Okay. I, I could I could also uh, phrase it as an expansion of access to higher education that was critical for the continuing development um, of the United States. And as Johnson himself in that uh, clip pointed out, pulling people out of poverty. But what happens by the time the 1970s roll around? Was the system working the way LBJ had uh, hoped it would? No. And so, you know, LBJ, again, wanted banks to make loans to people who needed money. And banks uh, were having trouble doing so, in part because just as we're going through a lot of inflation right now, Inflation was becoming an issue back then. And banks were essentially saying, if you want us to make loans to students, Congress is going to have to give us money to to do so. They're going to have to give us higher interest rates on these loans so that we can turn a profit. Otherwise, uh, we're not making enough profits in this inflationary environment. So this is when, in the 1970s, to solve this problem, to further entice banks to make loans to students, Congress created, created Sa- Sally May which was a so-called quasi-public agency. It was a for-profit company that was overseen by Congress. And it was essentially a vehicle where the Treasury Department infused Sally Mae with taxpayer money. And then Sally Mae gave that money to banks and schools Mm -hmm. um, to make loans to students. And I argue in my book that this is really when higher education kind of became a big for-profit business. You know, if, you ever, if you've ever wondered how colleges went from being a so-called public good to this big industry that makes money, this is really when it happened because, again, Congress set this up to be so, a for-profit company. And, and by the way, Sally Mae's shareholders were colleges and banks. Hmm. So uh, colleges benefited from this new student loan system in two ways. Not only did their students now have access to loans, which made it easier for colleges to raise their prices on on students, they also got some of the direct profits every time that happened. And so by the the 80s, um, this whole system started to really ramp up. And this is, again when profits became intertwined with higher education. So so as just to emphasize what you what you said, because Congress designed Sally Mae to be this way, and, and this happened under the Nixon administration, if I'm Yes. Okay. Um, then that's where the profit motive essentially becomes a major factor here in the gov- in the federal financing of higher education. Okay, so that's late that's the seventies uh, moving into the 80s and sort of the massive ballooning um, of Sally Mae. Then um, I'm really fast forwarding through a lot here because yeah. um, is, is it fair to say that the next great sort of um, 
federal act to regarding higher ed is in is in um, the early Clinton administration, or is there something during Reagan and George H. W. Bush that we should touch upon here? Yeah, so Reagan was crucial, um, okay. and and uh, the the Reagan era was crucial because there were a lot of things going on. The first thing that happened was there was a deep recession in the early eighties. And, and when the country came out of that downturn, businesses really started to invest in technology. The computer age came to be. And so this era of globalization started to take hold, which meant that if you were a worker with who had gone to college, your wages were going up because workers with skills um, in this new globalization environment um, were, you know, were being paid a lot. Employers were looking for highly skilled workers. Meanwhile, workers with who did not go to college, a lot of workers who worked in manufacturing, for example, their wages were going down. And so the so-called college wage premium, mm-hmm. the difference of what college graduates make versus non-graduates, it was the 80s when that really started to increase. And so that what that meant was you all of a sudden had all of these families in the 80s and 90s that felt this economic imperative to go to college and graduate school. And they were just pounding on the doors of schools. Now, um, coupled with that, that is when loans really started to come into play. Because like I said, Sally Mae was created in 1972, but it wasn't until the 80s that Sally Mae in the education department or the federal government um, really started to learn how to how to run this program and in a way that banks were paid on time. And so it became a really efficient operation. And so just at a time when all of these families were seeking to go to college, students were seeking to go to college, the uh, the federal education department and banks and Sally May were making it extremely easy for these students to get access to loans. And that's when schools started to raise their prices in response. Yeah. You had more people going to college. You had more people with more money through loans to go to school and pay the price of going to college. And if you look at a chart of when tuition really started to peak up, it was right around this time. Okay. And by the way, this, this was also when President Reagan was really emphasizing this idea of, um, you know, you should pay your own way, individual responsibility. And paying for college is the burden of the household. It's not necessarily the federal government's responsibility to pay for college. You know, students should do it through, you know, them themselves through loans. Mm-hmm. Okay. So we go from Reagan through George H.W. Bush. And then comes Bill Clinton, because he's looking at the situation that you described, Josh, and uh, then the would-be president is saying, well, there's got to be a way to to get a handle on this problem. So here's Clinton in 1992 at a campaign stop in Las Vegas, outlining the new direction he wanted America to go in. He told the crowd there that there was one proposal, more than any other, that symbolized what that new direction was all about. And that is our program to open the doors of college education to all Americans. We propose to replace the wasteful student loan program with a national trust fund out of which any American can borrow the money to go to college and then pay it back either as a small percentage of their income after they go to work or even better by giving a couple of years of service to our country before or after college. You think about it. Without a government bureaucracy, we could solve the people problems of America from the grassroots up and educate a whole new generation of Americans. It would be the best investment this country ever made. 
Bill Clinton, then candidate in a 1992 Las Vegas campaign stop, talking about what would become the direct loan program. We'll talk about that when we come back. This is On Point. Support for the On Point podcast comes from Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform that lets you find candidates fast. Ditch the busy work and use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com onpoint. That's Indeed.com onpoint. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. This is On Point. I'm Meghna Chakrabarty. And today we're talking about how to really solve, solve the student loan debt crisis for every generation of Americans in the future beyond just retroactively canceling debt as the Biden administration is considering now. Josh Josh Mitchell joins us. He's author of The Debt Trap, How Student Loans Became a National Catastrophe. And Josh... um, I appreciate you, by the way, giving us this like speed course in the yeah. uh, multi-decade-long history of the federal government's role um, in student loan debt in this country. Because we started with LBJ expanding the use of the federal government to help uh, finance uh, education for uh, for Americans. We talked about inflation in the '70s, that bringing on um, Congress's creation of Sally May in 1972, that quasi-public institution um, that was run by banks and um, universities who also then could profit from student loans, and then the college degree premium, which you accurately described uh, in the 80s, and the rush for many more American families to want to send their kids to college. And and that forming kind of a, seems like what you were describing is a positive feedback loop between uh, uh, tuition uh, rate rises and the amount of debt that students were taking on. Then we get to 1992 and Clinton, who then becomes president, wanting to create the direct loan program. How did that – it was created and how did it differ from what had come before? Okay, so uh, up until that point, banks had been making loans to students. And this was really a way for the government to provide loans without making the program look expensive because it was quote-unquote off the books. And Bill Clinton said, look – this doesn't make sense. Let's just have the Treasury Department directly make loans to students. Let's cut the banks out of the process. We'll save a lot of money for taxpayers that way. And also, we'll give students access uh, to this new repayment plan called income-based repayment, which basically is a form of insurance. It basically means that if you go to college and you don't end up making a lot of money afterward, but you have all this debt, you, you could just pay a share of your income. And so that your monthly payments will always be commensurate with how much you're earning. If you earn a lot, then you pay a lot back. If you earn little, then you don't pay much back. It's a form of insurance. Um so the banks really fought back, but the banks and 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 Sally May really uh, fought hard to keep this program in place. And so there was a compromise that Congress worked out, where suddenly there were two loan programs, mm. and uh, students had access to both. Um, and so that you know led to twenty years of fighting between these two programs, who were both backs backed by taxpayers, but competed against each other. Meanwhile, this income-based repayment plan, Congress approved it, but the terms weren't quite that good. So a lot of students did not enroll in it. Um, it was set out that you know you could pay 
15% of your income, uh, for example, if you used the program that Bill Clinton created. But not a lot of students ended up using that because the bank-based program started to, you know, work with schools to convince students to do that program. So long story short is that uh, President Clinton had this great vision to help students with their loans, but there were a lot of problems that came to be, and a lot of students didn't have access to that. Okay. So, um, and like you said, it kicked off this long-running battle, but the battle was intense from the start, right? Because it was, what, 1994-95 that the Republican-controlled Congress um, had proposed to cut the direct loan program entirely. I mean, what was their argument? Did they have an argument that's saying it was costing the federal government too much? I mean, what were they saying? Uh so the the argument from the banks was, you know, look, uh, the you know this administration or any administration is not going to be able to efficiently run a bank, you know, and and that's basically what President Clinton wanted the education department to be was essentially mm. a consumer bank, and so the bank said, look, the private sector knows how to run these things; we can run it smoothly, so we should stay in the program. Um, and and so and so again, you just had this this fight between these two programs for the next twenty years until Barack Obama comes into play, which I'm sure we'll get get yeah. to that at some point. But. Yeah. So just to be clear, though, again, that it, the federal government was giving loans directly through the direct loan program and subsidizing the loans from Sally Mae. Right. So what would happen is the school basically. This is where it gets interesting. The school was basically deputized by the education department to manage these two programs. So if you went to college, you would go to your financial advisor um, at the college. Um, and, uh, and or I'm sorry, it's called a financial aid advisor. And they would steer you to one of these two programs. And so later on, one of the things that ended up happening was some of these banks were accused of basically offering kickbacks to schools to use the bank-based program um, as opposed to Bill Clinton's program. Um, but the school... Uh, you know, and this is where I think it became easy for schools to raise their prices. The school mm. would advise the student, and still does, on which loans they they can get access to, which uh, which programs they can get access to, and the school is essentially, you know, providing these students the blank check, even though the school doesn't have to put up its own money. Uh huh. Okay, so I'm going to stick with the mid '90s here for a second because it is fascinating. Um, in '94 and '95, Bill Clinton continues to make this argument that he believes that the federal direct loan program is better for students, schools, and and he says it uh, uh, costs taxpayers less money. But here is um, the a view from the GOP. This is in 1996. Uh, then House Republican Congressman John Kasich of Ohio was talking at a press conference in 96. And at the time, uh, Congress and the White House were debating the details of the next year's budget. And as we were talking about the previous year, there had been that you know, vigorous debate between the GOP and the Clinton administration about um, the federal direct loan program. So in 1996, Republicans proposed actually a 42% increase in funds available for student loans. But I really want to make a, a comment to the mothers and fathers and the students that may see this show. I think, frankly, you ought to be asking the presidents of these colleges and universities why their costs are absolutely out of control. And I, I really, I think we better all come to terms with the fact that even a even a 42% increase, frankly, is not enough to keep up with the, 
an education program whose costs are running at inflation levels far above everything else in our society. John Kasich in 1996 there. Now, look, we could spend 100 hours talking about why um, costs have gone up so much in higher ed. And, of course, we're touching on that a little bit uh, this hour, Josh. But the fact is, is that as far back as 1996, John Kasich and others were raising this question of, like, we could give billions more dollars in federal funding, but that still wouldn't answer the question of why costs are out of control. So let's continue our, our history sprint here and move forward to the Obama administration, because the date that stands out to me, and correct me if I'm wrong, is 2010. Is that where we should look at for Obama? Yes and no. So okay. Obama's his his first speech to Congress uh, after taking over the White House, he basically said he wanted everyone to commit at least one year to higher education. So he doubled down on this idea that college is the path to a good job and that everyone should pursue it. Um, so I think it's really important to uh, to actually start there. Mm. Okay. And 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 why though? So because it just did it. it is it because it, it further increased that uh, college degree premium that you were talking about? The first emerges in the eighties. Well, I also think it's important to under you know one of the things I ask people who have student loans, both the students and the parents themselves, why did you sign on the dotted line to take out so much debt that you're now struggling to repay? Help me understand what your thinking was. And they all invariably said, especially the parents, they said, my kid came home and told me to sign this document or I won't be able to go to college. And why would I ever deny my child the opportunity to make something better of themselves? College is the key to the middle class in the United States. And if they don't go to college, then they're not going to make something of themselves and they'll never make enough money to live a good lifestyle. And so the reason why I say it's important to start with Obama's first speech is one of the big reasons why so many families have gotten into so much debt is because they've had this faith in higher education as being not just a good investment, but an investment that they need to make mm. in order to make something of themselves in the United States. And now, of course, the question for many of those same families is, is the debt that they took on in order to realize that it ha has the cost outweighed the benefit? Um, so point well taken there, Josh. But you know, at the same time, again, I'm not going to go down this tangent too much. There still is a demonstrated difference in lifetime income between college degree holders in this country and non-college degree holders. But I just wanted to put that out there as well. I well, yeah, yeah. Go, can go I? Yeah, I want to sure. address that real sure, quick because sure. I, I totally agree with you, and I don't want to mislead anyone into thinking that college is not a good investment. This has this is the difference between the average payoff and a lot of the people who are not getting that payoff. Um, so I just want to make two quick points. It is very true that on average there is still a strong college wage premium, but the people who are not receiving – there's a lot of differentiation outside of the average. There are significant shares of people who never finish their studies, and so they come out owing a lot of debt but can't get the job that they expected to get because they didn't finish college. Mm -hmm. These are college dropouts. And so something like 40 percent 
of of people who take on student debt don't get a degree within six years. Right. And we saw this happen in the housing bust. I, I, I make this point all the time. If you look at the share of mortgage debt that was delinquent during the height of the housing crash, it was under 10%. And yet that was a really big po- part of the population that had a systematic effect on, you know, the, it, it caused a financial crash. It, it sent the economy into a big downturn. Um, but yet, most people who had a mortgage at the height of the housing crash were doing just fine. So yeah. I think, you know, we just need to be careful to not allow the average to obscure a lot of these problem areas. Mm-hmm. Point well taken. We also have a comment from uh, Ray who sent us this tweet saying we need to require colleges to mentor students applying for student loans, maybe help them think through, um, you know, the cost of not finishing college if you're taking on these loans um, in a sense. Okay, I do want to just touch one more historical moment, and then that'll give us this very significant background of the federal government's constant role here in getting us to where we are at that $1.7 trillion of student loan debt. Because I'm thinking perhaps another significant moment is 2010, right, when President Obama signed the Health Care and Education Reconciliation Act of 2010. Um, In that act, it ended the federal government subsidizing of banks and other institutions who were issuing issuing student loans and furthered the direct borrowing program. Is that right? Right. So so again, just to recap, there are these two programs that were competing that were competing against each other, the bank based program, the direct loan program. President Obama comes in, says uh, we are going to end the bank based program. That's going to save taxpayers, according to the math at the time, 60 billion dollars over 10 years. Part of that funded the Affordable Care Act. Um, But it didn't really change anything from the student's perspective because, you know, whether you were using the bank-based program or the student loan program, it was still, again, uh, for Mm. lack of a better term, an entitlement program. You know, you were were guaranteed access to loans if you met minimum basic requirements. And so from the student's perspective, it didn't really change much. But um, from the taxpayer's perspective, it was designed to save money. Okay. Josh, hang on here for just a second, um, because now and I do really appreciate that walking through that history, because I think, you know, it's hard to understand the the twists and turns. But every single twist and turn has come through decisions made um, at the federal government level and at the administrative level, I'd say, of institutions of higher education uh, in this country. So we're going to push now and talk about solutions, long-term solutions here. And joining us is Beth Akers. She's a labor economist at the American Enterprise Institute, author of Making College Pay, an economist explains how to make a smart bet on higher education. Beth Akers, welcome to you. Hi, thanks so much for having me. Okay, so I want to talk with you and Josh now about what to do. <laughs> mm-hmm. So so first of all, keep, let's keep our focus for a moment on the federal government. If there was one thing that you would advise the federal government to do in order to let's at least, you know, put the brakes on the speed at which um, the student loan debt monster is growing, what would you do? Well, I would I would not do student loan cancellation, which I think has the opposite effect. But I always say, say the number one thing that needs to happen to make the system that we have work better is to shore up the existing safety net that borrowers have in place today. And Josh mentioned that already. That's the income-driven repayment system. If 
borrowers and institutions and policymakers all had confidence that that was working, I think that would go a really far way in alleviating a lot of the angst that we have and a lot of the pressure that we have to do one of these sweeping interventions like making college free or loan cancellation. You know, and I, and I asserted at the beginning of the show, and I just want to check my assertion with both of you, that... Um, a sort of retro- retroactive cancellation does nothing to solve the reasons why people are taking on so much debt to begin with. Am I right or wrong in it, saying that, Beth? You're absolutely right. It does nothing and at the same time exacerbates the problems that we have in place already. I like to say, you know, we've got students going out tomorrow, enrolling in college, deciding how much to spend, how much to borrow. And on the flip side, institutions are deciding how much to charge students. And all of that is going to be affected by by this belief now that the government is going to come in and wipe away student debt if we get in trouble again, which we certainly will get in trouble again. I mean, Josh, it sounds like the classic moral hazard. Yeah, so I do think that there is a moral hazard here, and I think that there uh, it's important to pay attention to incentives. You know, one of my main points in the book is that this system is rife with perverse incentives, and I think this could create another one. However, I do want to make I do want to represent the argument on the other side of this, and I want to provide some context. Um, basically, it is the policy of the United States right now to give anyone with a pulse a check to spend unlimited amounts of money to go to college, to any college in the country, regardless of the quality, to study any major, regardless of how much that major is going to earn. And that policy has led to the biggest consumer default crisis in the history of mankind. And if the if the federal government was a private bank they would be forced to write off a lot of this debt. This is what happened in the housing crash. This is exactly what happened with mortgage lenders. They made a lot of reckless loans to families to buy houses at inflated prices. And then they came to realize in 2008 that there was a lot of toxic debt on their books that was never going to get repaid. They they were forced to acknowledge that. And they wrote off a lot of this debt. Mm. And so I do think that this is, in one sense, uh, the Biden administration and Congress starting to acknowledge that there is a lot of toxic debt. Some of this debt has been on the books for 20 and 30 years, and it's just never going to get repaid. So I do think it's really important to understand the moral hazard of, of student debt cancellation. I also think... That is, it is important to acknowledge that some of this debt is just never going to get get paid back. Okay, so that's actually an interesting metaphor here. And and again, as we push towards solutions, I want to talk with both of you about that because not only was you know the federal government did made some decisions about toxic assets on the on the books with housing, but they also reformed how people could get mortgages and made it harder. Not saying that we should do that for education, but we can walk and chew gum at the same time regarding solutions, and we'll talk more about that. In just a minute, this is On Point. Did you kill Marlene Johnson? I think you're one of the first people to have actually asked. From WBUR and ZSP Media, this is Beyond All Repair, a new podcast about an unsolved murder that will leave you questioning everything. Somebody should be in jail for murdering my sister. A woman who's never been believed. As long as they think I have done this, then they're not looking for who actually did this. And that's what makes it a cold case. No, it's a botched case. And a search for the truth, once and for all. Wow, it just gets more interesting. Beyond All Repair. 
Listen and follow wherever you get your podcasts. Be careful. You're digging in a place that's been very peaceful for a while. Do it anyway. Dig. Hi, On Point listeners. I'm poet and author Shin Yi Pai. As you celebrate Asian American Pacific Islander Heritage Month, I invite you to listen to the 10,000 Things podcast from KUOW and the NPR Network. 10,000 Things is a podcast about modern artifacts of Asian American life, ordinary objects that tell extraordinary stories and reveal something profound about the experience of being Asian in America. Find 10,000 Things from KUOW and the NPR Network wherever you get your podcasts. This is On Point. I'm Meghna Chakrabarty. Just a quick heads up on what we're talking about on the show tomorrow. If you had to guess what state in the United States was home to 75 percent or three quarters of all litigation around property insurance, what would you guess? Florida, if you raised your hand, you're right. So we're going to talk about why Florida is such a hotbed for property insurance litigation on the show tomorrow. And we want to hear from property and homeowners in Florida. Have you seen your premiums go up? Have you ever been denied insurance coverage? Has litigation been part of the picture? What is going on there? Call us at 617-353-0683. That's 617-353-0683. Today we're talking about actual long-term solutions to at least get a grip on the student loan debt crisis in this country. Josh Mitchell joins us. He's author of The Debt Trap, How Student Loans Became a National Catastrophe. And Beth Akers is with us as well. She's author of Making College Pay, An Economist Explains How to Make a Smart Bet on Higher Education. And um, Beth, I just wanted to hear from you briefly um, more about the role of the institutions of higher education here, because Josh had said earlier that um, in the era of the inter- after the introduction of Sally May, that quasi-public um, you know entity, uh, which also allowed banks uh, to pro- to make profit off the loans they were given that were backed by the federal government, that that the colleges were a part of this picture to begin with. I'm just wondering what what you mm-hmm. think of that and their role here. Well, you know, I'm an economist, so I say as long as people are responding to the incentives that policy puts out in front of them, I mean, good on them. And I think it's up to us to to fix those. But what we have in place, of course, is that institutions are selling this thing that is the college degree that is actually hugely valuable. And we've told everybody in the country, go out and get this thing. And the institutions have responded by raising their prices. And not so much that, that it's not still a good deal. So I think the the institutions, yes, are part of the issue. But the problem, of course, is the blank check that mm. Josh talked about, which is that students can spend whatever they want, whatever institutions charge, without constraining that figure. We're not going to get a handle on tuition inflation, and we're not going to get a handle on student loans. Mm. So, Josh, I had asked uh, Beth that question earlier. Let's start, you know, that if you could choose one thing that the federal government could do right now that might begin to solve the problem long term, what would it be? Well, far be it from me to, you know, say what Congress should do. I am a reporter. I have to be careful about uh, not being an activist. But what I do, what I do point out to people when they want to talk about this is, there was actually a pretty efficient, robust student loan program in place before 
1965 Higher Education Act. And this was actually a privately financed student loan program. A bunch of corporate CEOs said that the economy and that the country needed more skilled workers for their companies. And so they put money into a pot. And so did the colleges. They put money into this pot. And this was an insurance fund that insured banks against default on student loans. So if a student defaulted, the banks would get reimbursed by this insurance fund. Um, and so colleges and, – and there were also colleges who were, who were directly making loans to their students. So there were student loan programs that were working pretty well before the, the federal student loan program. <clears throat> they had very low default rates. And my theory is, um, and it's not just a theory, I went through some of the the congressional transcripts to see what the argument was, was that they didn't just make a loan to anyone. You know, they, Hmm. for example, they they didn't make loans to freshmen because freshmen have always been at a high risk of dropping out. And one of the things we've seen with this federal program, one of the biggest predictors of default is if you drop out. So the federal government has been doing things that – in prior years, when this was run by other entities that had their own money on the line, would not do because it was just viewed as too risky, both for the borrower as well as for the person making the institution making the loan. Um, so I guess my broad answer to your question is, you know, if you if you want schools to, you know, be uh, to, to think twice, you know, in in raising their prices at twice and triple the rate of inflation, History can be a guide here. And when they had their own money on the line, they weren't doing that. Beth, what do you think about that? Yeah, you know, I, I want to add to that and say it's it's also good to point out that a huge fraction of the debt that's outstanding in the economy today is coming from people who are borrowing for graduate school. And as Josh was talking, I kind of was thinking of zooming out and saying, why why do we even have government intervention in this in the student loan market in the first place? Because it sounds like when there were market mechanisms in place, it actually helped make sure that the loans that were made were affordable and not too risky. And I think we're in a place where we got to step back and ask that again, especially for graduate lending, which is a huge portion of the pot that we're talking about today, if in fact the government were to say, you know, we're not going to make so much loans to graduate students, um, the private market would likely step in and they'd likely make more responsible loans than the ones that the federal government are making today. Hmm. Um, you know, there, we're, we'll talk about some other sort of concrete actions that could happen, but this seems to be a good moment to for, for me to ask something that's been na- nagging on, on my mind for a while now. Because you know, I, this is actually why I wanted to go through that historical march on the students, the story of the federal government financing student loans in that, you know, all the way back from LBJ through uh, Clinton and, and, and Obama, every president has said, fundamentally, this is an act of America investing in itself, Right. And that the payoff isn't necessarily can the student pay the loan back, although ideally they would. But it's an investment in the overall education and and competence and um, an innovation level of the United States as a nation. Now, in that case, is is the blank check that the federal government been giving uh, to students for 50 years now? Isn't is it worth it? Isn't it worth it, Beth? 
Well, you know, what the student loan program does is it allows students to invest in themselves. I mean, we sometimes talk about this like it's federal aid, um, implying that it's free money, but it's it's enabling students to spend their future income. So to the extent that we believe that there are social returns to education, and I think everybody believes that generally, we should be subsidizing education through grants. Those are like the Pell Grant program, for instance. Um, and so it's reasonable to say maybe we're under-subsidizing education because the returns to society in the form of higher taxes, um, just greater well-being of citizens, a more well-functioning democracy, those things are, are worth more than what we're spending today, perhaps, in, in Pell Grants. That should not mean that we're giving a blank check because, again, this is enabling students to invest in themselves rather than investing with taxpayer dollars in the future of our country. Okay, so this idea of maybe expanding grants is a notion that you share with several influential uh, members of Congress right now, including Massachusetts Democratic Congresswoman Ayanna Presley. Now, we talked to her recently, uh, and she told us that the question for her is what's next if the Biden administration does cancel any amount of student debt uh, and what is achievable, she says, in the current political climate. I have to you know, concede that uh, any forecasting that I would offer uh, in this current Congress or the future uh, would be uh, optimistic. But on the affordability issue, we have to invest in things like Pell Grants. I mean, that's things that those are things that are, can happen now. Tuition-free college and our HBCUs. And we need to get back to investing in higher education as the public good that it is. And Representative Presley pointed to uh, recent action against uh, for-profit colleges as a success that policy can be built on. And we have policies that have allowed, this is another issue I worked on um, for many years, the predatory for-profit college industry to make record returns by targeting our lowest income and vulnerable students, leaving them with heaps of debt and low quality degrees if they earned one at all. Um, other folks are uh, working on the issue of student loan debt, argue for helping graduates based on their income uh, after graduation. We mentioned this a little earlier, but Representative Presley believes that isn't actually as fair as it sounds. If we tie debt relief, you know, to income, then I think we fail to address the ways in which student debt has exacerbated specifically the generational wealth gap of black and brown communities in particular. And so that's why in this moment, again, if we uh, want to undo harm and also chart a different path forward, it's why we need the boldest and highest impact relief possible right now. And we shouldn't be setting up bureaucratic processes um, like means testing as an example that would exclude the folks that need the support the most. Beth Akers, what do you think about that? Well, the racial wealth gap in this country is absolutely an issue that we should be addressing, we should be spending resources on. But the idea that we should be addressing it through student loan policy is just sort of silly, to be honest. It's it's the wrong mechanism for fixing a problem that is broader than the higher education finance issue in general. So I appreciate that Democrats might say in response to that, well, this is what we can do today. Um, but I think we've got to aim higher than that. This is absolutely the wrong tool um, to be solving a problem that really is worthy of more resources and more attention. Okay, so we're getting a lot of comments here on other possible ways to uh, 
implement some longer term solutions. Andrew McIntosh says uh, eliminating debt won't solve anything. The problem is the predatory interest. Cancel the interest and lower it to 2 percent or so on any remaining balance and make it low for all student loans. That way people can. It will be possible for folks to repay them. Josh, what do you think? Yeah, so I think that this is an important point that should be discussed. You know, again, if you go back to housing, when a lot of people were so-called underwater on their loans, uh, there was a federal program called HAMP, um, H-A-M-P, and, and basically it encouraged lenders to renegotiate the balances with the homeowner so that they were no longer underwater. And this actually was pretty successful at getting homeowners to, you know, start repaying their their home loans after the housing crash. Um, and, it, and it really helped them, you know, basically get get back on track. It, it stopped the home price depreciation that was going on. Um, and so I, I always feel like maybe, you know, something could be discussed when it comes to student loans, you know, where uh, I'll 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 put it this 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 way. I talk to a lot of people who have student loans who say, "Look, I actually don't want my home whole loan canceled." And I knew that when I was getting into this that I would owe some amount of debt and I was prepared to pay that back. Um, but the problem is is that the interest accrued so quickly that I now no longer see a light, you know, and and I um and I don't see any way I'm ever going to repay it. So why would I even pay back you know mm-hmm. a, a a dime if I'm still going to owe a hundred thousand dollars or fifty thousand dollars? So I would just say this again. You know, again, I can't really take sides here, but I do think, practically speaking, there are a lot of people who you know, would would get back on board with repaying their loans if they sort of had some type of new type of loan that had better terms. Okay, <laughs> so um, again, I mean, I'm not asking you to take sides, just to be clear, but you know, we're brainstorming possible ideas sure, here. Sure. We've talked about Pell Grants, um, maybe doing something about interest uh, rates. Uh, um, and Beth, I want to come back to you on something because, you know, I'm still thinking of this tight embrace, right, that the institutions of higher education have with the federal government because of that mm-hmm. blank check. There's got to yeah. be ways to get the institutions themselves, the, the colleges and universities, on the hook a little bit, don't you think? Yeah, absolutely. So there's a conversation happening in D.C., or at least it was happening before everyone got sucked into the loan cancellation discussion that's been called risk sharing. So the idea that when students fail to successfully pay back their loans, maybe the institutions are on the hook financially to bail out the taxpayers, who are the ones who are ultimately going to help out those students. There's a lot of different ways to do that. It becomes very challenging to do, but I think it's got to be part of the solution. And even if it's part of the solution, um, just so that, you know, when an institution has a bad track record, that we start to say, okay, your students can't borrow as much as everybody else, right? We start to scale back the ability for an institution with a bad track record to participate in the federal loan program. Um, That's, you know, based on what we've had so far, that is sort of a radical idea, but it's not a radical idea when you think about how other loan markets work. In fact, it makes a lot of sense, right? Um, we, we make more credit available when the outcome is more certain and less credit available when it's riskier. Right. I mean, and, and again, in terms of what education, both for the individual and for the nation, is supposed to do, it makes a lot of sense to me. And Beth, I wanted to say it makes a lot of sense to me because we have to – the federal government is using taxpayer money for this. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and we as taxpayers need to expect some kind of return. And I'm not talking about financial return, but return for the betterment of the nation. And if schools are not churning out those graduates 
who are then mm-hmm. contributing to the nation. Well, I think as, you know, the holders of the debt, we, have, we it's fair for taxpayers to say we have some kind of expectation. Right. Absolutely. And I will say someone who's going to be critical of that position would say, but wait, hold on, the institutions that are serving our most disadvantaged students are going to have bad track records, right? These are the students who are least prepared for success in the job market. And so we just have to be careful with anything like that, that puts the institutions on the hook, that we're not putting um, a greater burden on institutions that are already serving our disadvantaged populations. Mm. Um, And another way to say that is, you know, we got to help poor people with money, not with loans, um, to make sure that we're not further distorting that problem. Right. So grants again, as you're talking about. No, and that's a really good point. Um, look, Josh and Beth, we only have uh, about a minute or so left. So I- I'm wondering what you think are the possibilities of any of these, uh, even you know, smaller subset of ideas taking hold uh, in Congress, Particularly because, I mean, the number is astounding. We're at $1.7 trillion now with no no end in sight of student loan debt. So I'm just going to give you both a couple of seconds here. Josh, do you think the climate is right for some sort of modifications to be to be passed by Congress? Yes and no. I think that this has started that whole discussion. I think what you're going to see is, you know, there's going to be a focus on student loan cancellation. Uh, And so maybe next year or the year after, they might talk about some of these, you know, things that would hold schools more uh, accountable. Uh, But if history is a guide here, um, Congress tends to kick the can down the road. Uh, So... um, Yes, I'll 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 leave it at that. Okay, and Beth, you got ten seconds. Are you feeling a little more sure. optimistic? Yeah. Well, I think if we get an executive action canceling student loans, we're going to see a lot of motivated policymakers to stop who want to stop the bleeding in the loan program. So we may get some action that way. Well, Beth Akers, author of Making College Pay, an economist, explains how to make a smart bet on higher education. It was great to have you back, Beth. Thank you so much. Thank you. And Josh Mitchell, staff reporter at The Wall Street Journal and author of The Debt Trap, How Student Loans Became a National Catastrophe. Josh, thank you so much as well. Sure, thanks. I'm Meghna Chakrabarty. This is On Point. <laughs> 